Welcome to 7 Seconds or Less. This is a Phoenix Suns podcast with an NBA focus. No, Max hasn't developed an Australian accent. There is no new episode this week as we take some time off. So instead, we are bringing back the two-part interview with Jack McCallum, author of 7 Seconds or Less, the story of the 05-06 Phoenix Suns. For any new listeners who haven't heard it, we hope you enjoy For any of you who have heard it already, perhaps you'll enjoy it again all in one place, on its own, or feel free to get out now while you can. We will be back next week with a fresh episode and hopefully some more positive Suns news to talk about. For now, we hope you enjoy the interview with Jack. We are joined by a special guest today for an extended version of Did You Know? Over two episodes, we'll be delving into the Suns' past like we love to do in this segment, but with our very special guest, Jack McCallum. Hello to you, Jack. How are you? Good to be here. For those who may not know, you're, of course, the author of the great Suns book, Seven Seconds or Less, My Season on the Bench with the Runnin' and Gunnin' Phoenix Suns. That's quite a long name and, and something you like to do with all your books, Jack. It's something I do not like to do, as a matter of fact. the uh, It seems to be the publisher seems really intent on long subtitles. My, I, I did a book on the Dream Team, and it had an equally long subtitle. It was not my idea, but you really can't fight a publisher on titles of books. So I had the main title, Seven Seconds or Less, but it was their idea uh, to put in the subtitle. Just seems to be something publishers do. Interesting, interesting. So you mentioned the Dream Team book there, and we like our guests to give their own intros on the show. So how about a quick rundown of of some other books that you've written over time and and in more recent times since the Seven Seconds or Less book, Jack? Well, I wrote that. uh, I wrote Seven Seconds or Less in the waning uh, 2005-2006, in the waning years of my career at Sports Illustrated. Uh, I just got tired of travel, wanted to get out, had other books to write still retain a really good relationship with Sports Illustrated. I'm on the masthead. But since I left, I had time to do a uh, a book on the Dream Team, which has been uh, very successful, called the Dream Team. I did a book with uh, Jim Beheim, the Syracuse coach. I did a book uh, last year, the paperback's ready to come out, called Golden Days, which is about Jerry West's old Laker team and the new Golden State Warriors, the kind of connections between them uh, through Jerry West. And I did a book on uh, prostate cancer in the, uh, in the middle of all that. I had, I had prostate cancer and uh, ground out a book on that topic too. So I've, I've managed to stay uh, pretty busy since seven seconds or less. You have, and uh, we love to to pose the did you know question in this segment, Jack. So I'll jump right in. Did you know that on November 14 of this year, it will be the 12th birthday of your seven seconds or less book, and quite ironically, we'll be playing the San Antonio Spurs on that night. 
So we didn't actually face the Spurs in your book of the 05-06 season, but how about a, a quick recap of what the book does cover before we we jump into some specific things, Jack? Well, uh, I had this idea. It started in the preseason. It started just as a story for Sports Illustrated. I thought it would be interesting to spend some time as a, quote, assistant coach with a basketball team. Uh, but I didn't know who would let me do it. I mean, I, you know, I there were some teams you eliminated automatically, like the Spurs, because Pop would never let uh, – you know, I like Pop and he likes me, but he wouldn't let me within 10 feet of his locker room all the time. <laughs> I mean, I thought of the Suns. They were an interesting team. I knew Dan Tony a little bit. I knew Steve. I knew Sean Marion. Uh, I knew the public relations director very well, Julie Fye, who's one of the great people in the history of public relations. And I thought they might go for it. And they, they said yes. And I wrote the story for Sports Illustrated. And I was not smart enough to think of it myself, but an editor called me and said, look, uh, this story was so interesting and people liked it so much. Why don't you expand it into a book? And I called up Mike D'Antoni and said, look, what I did in the preseason, I want to follow you all season long. And he basically right then and there said, yes, (laughs) it was kind of uh, it was kind of that easy. Some things. Most things in my business are harder than they seem uh, to set up. This one was very definitely easier. So jumping into the book now, we're going to run through in the order it was written. I'm going to blend two ideas here, one from our podcast and one from the great Zach Lowe. Uh, If you're game, Jack, I'm going to put you on the spot, which we love to do with my co-host Max uh, in this segment by giving you a few quotes from the book and test your memory on who said them. Does that sound good to you? No, it sounds probably bad, but go ahead and let's do it. (laughs) I may not remember. Uh, I've made them pretty easy for you, but we'll fill in the blanks if you can't remember any. So the first cab off the rank, and I'll, I'll give you a clue to start. It comes in the bits before chapter one of the book, and it says... Jack, I hope you're paying for that. Do you remember who said that one? Uh, I think that's Steve Nash. That is Steve Nash. It comes in the backstory section before chapter one, as I said, where you note how tough it was to become one of the team. But also note that Nash was one of the ones you gelled with quite quickly. So how hard was it to begin with? And was Nash's acceptance crucial to, uh, you know, the following rest of the year, Jack? Well, of course. I mean, I, you know, the, the first thing were the coaches. I mean, that's who I was going to be spending the most time with. The players, it was going to take a while. The only ones I really knew uh, at all were Steve uh, Nash and I knew Sean Marion. Uh, thinking quickly, I didn't know anybody else really. And you know, the the tone is kind of set by the coaches and the leader of the team. And that was very much Steve, to a certain extent, Sean. And uh, the coaches seemed to accept me. And I gradually developed a relationship with uh, with most of the players. And, you know, it ended up not good at the end with Sean. Uh, after the book came out, he was not entirely pleased with some of the things. But Everything else, it worked out uh, pretty smoothly. Great, great. So the next one on is from early on in the book as well and comes from one of the many coaches meetings that you sat in on. You just said that, you know, you spent most of your time with the coaches, which is explained early on in the book. And, you know, personally, I think that's some of the best bits of the book. But 
This one is as the Suns are preparing for the Lakers and talking about Kobe. It's it's also about Tim Thomas, who is the subject of a lot of robust coaches conversation in the book. So the quote is, we shouldn't be afraid of that. I expect Tim Thomas to play good defense. He's an NBA player. Do you remember who that was? Uh, well, um, I would think that would probably be Mark Ivoroni. It wasn't Mark Ivoroni. It was Dan D'Antoni. It was uh, a nice, funny exchange between Ivoroni and Dan D'Antoni, actually. And, you know, Dan D'Antoni is a bit of a comedic figure throughout the book. But as I mentioned, there was also a lot of heated conversations. And what was it like being on a, you know, a fly on the wall in, in some of those conversations? Did it, did it get awkward at times, Jack? Well, Dan was in a, in a, a peculiar position. I mean, I mean, he was Mike's brother, so obviously he was going to be accepted, but he was a little bit more like me. I mean, Dan was kind of an outsider and he was his first year in the league. And yeah, he got in basically because, you know, uh, they knew he knew basketball and he was Mike's brother, but Dan was learning the ropes too. And I kind of spent a lot of my time with Dan because we were both in this sort of same position. And I think one of the things Dan thought was, wow, everybody plays hard. Everybody's going to be a good defensive player. And I think he found out really that wasn't exactly the, uh, that wasn't exactly the case. One of the great Ivoroni quotes about Tim Thomas was uh, he looked at him one day practicing and he went, Eh, he's got a low flame, <laughs> which was that quote stuck with me for a long time. I've used that a lot since. Eh, he's got a low flame, you know, uh, and Dan had to learn things, too. Yeah. Just like I did. Yeah, I think that quote could still be used for a, a lot of sons since this team playing on defense and, and probably a few in the current team as well. But the next quote comes from one of your full timeouts in the first half of the book, which by the way, are great little tidbits throughout the book that jump you know, around the whole season and, and give great context to situations throughout the playoffs. So this one's, a, it's a short one, Jack, and it is, who's the Russian? Who's the Russian? <laughs> I'm afraid you, uh, I'm afraid you might have me on, is it a coach or a player? Uh, it, it's neither. It's a Suns legend and, and a staff member on the team at the at the time. Uh, he was the arena manager. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't remember that one. You got me on that one. <laughs> it was Alvin Adams, Jack. So my question here is on Boris Dior, who the quote was about. He's a, a key figure in the book due to Amari's injury and the trade to bring him in before the season. So. You know, was he all talent at the time and no work, or are we a little hard on Boris for you know thinking that maybe he took things a little too easy, particularly that season, Jack? Yeah, there was a suspicion about uh, Boris that he was a little bit too smiley, uh, that he wasn't. Uh, he didn't exactly have when he came when he came there. N- nobody knew exactly what he was. You know, there's always this hunger to know what somebody is. Well, he's a rebounding power forward. You know, Kurt Thomas, he can hit the elbow jumper and he gets rebounds. Uh, Nash is obviously this. Marion's a versatile player. Boris, they didn't they didn't really know what he was. And in point of fact, uh, he ended up as kind of their Swiss Army knife. You know, he was playing center. He was playing forward. D'Antoni let him handle a little bit. Uh, 
So I think his versatility and his lack of, of key position worked against him in the beginning. But then on a D'Antoni team, it really worked out for him. And by the end of the season, the two players who had done the most by far in the coach's eyes were Nash, of course, an MVP candidate, and uh, and uh, Boris Diaw. Uh, but there was a suspicion about Boris in the beginning. Yeah, there's the another great section in the book where he battles one on one with Amari when you know Amari's trying to come back from injury, and you know everyone's quite shocked about how well he does against Amari, you know, because of how physically gifted Amari is. And there's even that other story, you know, outside of the book where uh, Boris walks in bare feet holding a coffee and. Uh, you know, breaks Amari's vertical leap record with without even trying. So I think a lot of Suns fans, you know, think that maybe if he worked even a little harder, he, he might have been even better in a Suns uniform. Yeah, Boris's career was really, I'm not sure that Boris would have gone on to have the career that he did had he not, you know, gotten with Phoenix. Because by the end of his time in San Antonio, although he had gained weight, he had gotten bigger. He was the same kind of player. You know, you couldn't quite define what he was. And uh, he was really a delight to be around. I mean, Boris was really a little bit of an outsider, it seemed, but he he didn't really seem to care about it. I mean, he didn't seem to care that, you know, he had a different diet. He had different tastes than the other players. But I think it came, you know, as the season went on, his value became more and more clear, obviously, to the coaches, but also to the players. Yeah, you know, this Suns team's often talked about it being a, a bit ahead of its time with the the Warriors, and Boris was maybe even a bit ahead of his time. I can't help but think that he'd be pretty perfect in, in today's NBA where, you know, positions aren't as crucial and he, he's not seen as much of a, a tweener position with, you know, no defined role on the court. That's correct. I mean, Boris could play. Boris couldn't guard every position, obviously, but he could certainly play every position. And as I said, he was... All the players. I mean, I got. It, I was just lucky. I hit. I hit these type of players who were just in their own way. They were different personalities, uh, and Raja Bell could certainly be a little bit uh, volatile, let's say. But uh, I got along with them all, and they were all really good guys. And I just remember them all uh, really fondly. So I'm saving the best till last for part one here, Jack, and, and maybe the easiest for you too. It, it comes after a game six win over the Lakers in round one. Raja Bell was suspended and the Suns uh, win the game to tie it three all before eventually going on to win. And the quote here is, make sure you mention Sean. We couldn't have done it without him. Who said that one, Jack? Uh, well, that would be somebody that was always... You know, the coaches were always, before I tell you, I'm not, I'm going to just guess on the answer, but the coaches were always trying to pump up Sean a little bit because Sean always felt he was overshadowed by certainly Steve, but he was also sensitive about being overshadowed by Amare. And all the coaches, you know, were kind of united in that, uh, in that regard, you know, of trying to, Hey, make sure you uh, you know mention Sean. Don't let Sean get down. Don't let Sean feel his contributions weren't noticed. So it could have been anybody, but I'm guessing it was. I guess I could. I would guess Ivoroni for that one. It was the the head honcho this time. It was Mike D'Antoni to Jerry Brown after that game, and 
you've you've mentioned it a few times already in, in this section one and Marion's you know feelings about the team and his value on the team is kind of an undertone throughout the book you know particularly for me so you know he even makes a comment that night about losses being on him and wins being on everyone else and you know, did you think his feelings were justified or, you know, you've said that it was something that everyone was always worried about, but was he you know, a little touchy about that or, or did he really not get the credit he was deserved? I think it probably went, uh, I think he had a case once in a while um, because, you know, I would say he was 30% correct and he was 70% wrong. I mean, the idea that Sean was overlooked, I, I just don't think is correct. I think people, uh, you know, understood his value. They understood that he had to guard power forwards and small forwards. They understood that he, you know, was a guy that, that could get out on the break and also make three-pointers, but it never quite seemed enough for him. And the one place I think he was justified was that Amari Stoudemire's incredible potential, what he could do when he was motivated and when he was not injured. That was always a lively topic of conversation. And I think that's probably what got Sean uh, the most upset, the mentions about Amari. Deep inside of Sean, he knew that he wasn't as valuable as Steve. I think he believed that. But he really did think that Amari got way too much credit and attention uh, and and not always contributing 100% to the extent that that he did. Yeah, it's going to be interesting with the Suns' ring of honor. You know, you, you would hope that Nash, Amari, and Marion are, are all together one, that, you know, one day, but Marion obviously got his title, unlike the others, with the Mavs. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting, again, whether he makes the Hall of Fame and whether – you know, he, he sees himself as a, a Phoenix Sun in the Hall of Fame or, or maybe as a Mav because of that title. But definitely some more conversations to be had between between those three to, you know, look back in retrospect, Jack. Well, it is interesting that I, I was always glad, you know, Sean confronted me after the book came out. And I, I remember it was the begin, first game of the next season. I was in Seattle doing something and the Suns were there. I, I, I don't think I was doing a Sun story. I can't remember. But Sean was really upset, really thought that I demeaned him uh, in the book, really thought too many people said things about him. And it was probably the only negative thing that came out of the book. And so kind of quiet wasn't, you know, kind of quietly, I was happy that Sean got his ring. <laughs> you know, he was the only, uh, you know, he was the only one, you know, to get his uh, to get a ring. Uh, and uh, I found that uh, I found that pretty interesting. And I was happy when he got one, you know, it kind of, you know, justified him certainly in his own mind a little bit. So Jack, that brings us to the end of part one of our Did You Know special with you. But before we end, I wanted to do a special seven seconds or less segment to finish, which is where we ask three questions of the other person and you have seven seconds or less to answer the question, but we ne- we never keep to that rule. So don't, don't worry if you go over slightly. So are you, are you game for some, some questions to end here? All right. Maybe it's 24 seconds or less. <laughs> so who was the easiest interview and who was the hardest interview while making the book, Jack? Our, uh, easiest inter- the hardest interview was Steve because to get stuff out of him was very difficult. The easiest interview 
was Eddie House. You could stick your microphone in front of him, and Eddie would talk. <laughs> interesting, interesting. What's one bit from the season that you wish was in the book, either that you just you know missed the cut in the edit or that you maybe didn't get access to at the time? Believe it or not, I wish I could have got a little bit better into Steve, and it remains that way. I still remain friends with Steve. I see him once in a while uh, on various things, but I still don't feel... You know, the essential Nash has been unlocked, and certainly I was not able to do it. And that's curious because he's the one person I remain close to beside uh, D'Antoni, but uh, I didn't feel I unlocked him very well. Interesting. So the last one for now, Jack, did you secretly hope the Suns could go all the way for the purposes of the book? There was no secret about it. (laughs) I sat there every game silently rooting for the Suns, because, I, you know, it's not personal. It, well, I got to know them, so I would be happy for them. Totally selfish, totally professional reasons. I wanted them to win badly because you want to write. In this game, you either got to write about a team that's really, really good or really, really bad. And uh, that's that's the most interesting teams. So I really wanted them to win. No question about it. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. It's been really fun to look at the first half of the book. And listeners, if you haven't read Seven Seconds or Less before, then you have a week to find out before we jump back into the second half. I can speak from experience. It will take you longer for the delivery than to finish the book. It's such a great, fast read for Suns fans. But for now, we will continue with the rest of the episode, but we'll be back again next week with part two with Jack. Back with Jack for part two of our chat about his book and the great 05-06 season for the Phoenix Suns. Part one was a lot of fun, so are you ready to jump back into part two? Yes, sir. Ready to go. We pick it up roughly halfway through the book and at the beginning of this second playoff series versus the Clippers. Jack, the Suns have just scraped by the Lakers 4-3 as we ended in part one. So we'll jump back into the same format here, and that probably gives you a little bit of a clue about where my first quote actually comes from. So, you know, it is prior to the series with the Clippers, and going you're going through a, a section explaining the dynamics of the locker room. So starting off with a slightly different one here, who said this, the coaches can never be sure what they're going to get out of him from one game to the next, partly because they consider him a poor preparation guy. Uh, who said it or who are they talking about? It's not a quote. It's me talking about Correct. it. Correct. You said that one, Jack. You, you caught my trick question there. And, you know, and maybe alluding to it there, do you know who they're talking about or who you're talking about? Well, they're, I mean, my best guess would be uh, they were talking about, well, Amari wasn't, uh, I'm trying to think it could be Amari or Sean, but I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say Amari. It's one of the uh, lesser role players on the team, uh, if you want to have another crack. Well, then it would be Sean, I guess. <laughs> no, it was James Jones. Oh, James Jones. I forgot he was that important at all, but uh, <laughs> I do remember that now. I remember, yeah. Phil, Phil Weber used to work with, uh, Phil used to work with James a lot, and he would get uh, frustrated. And James had a little bit of a low flame also, but uh, he ended up having a, a pretty extended career because, you know, there was always a threat that he could that he could bomb some threes down on you, and he had some size, and once in a while he could guard some people. But James was a young player then, and uh, 
I, I do remember that Nash used to talk to him about it. He would James once in a while would be eating fries and and chicken like forty five minutes before the game, and Nash would just shake his head and just say, "Man, you can't." When you get to be my age in the league, you can't be uh, you can't be eating like that. <laughs> yeah, there's a quote a little further on where Nash is yelling out the the time on the clickety, as you like to say, and uh, Jones is still putting on his sneakers. But I threw him in because he's you know now a member of the Suns front office, and I think a few people might be surprised by the lack of preparation, particularly because of what he went on to do in his career and. Uh, you know, the fact he's kind of been brought in to relate more to players and, and have that more professional side. So, you know, throwing back to the book, what was the locker room like on, on game day, Jack? Who, you know, who were the loud ones? Who were the quiet ones? And, you know, who were the, the steadying influences around the locker room? Well, it wasn't a really, it wasn't a really loud team. Uh, I think the one, one of the players that the, they wished was was more healthy and ready to go was Kurt Thomas. They really looked upon him as a solid guy, a veteran leader, people that everybody respected. But, you know, one thing that's a reality about pro sports and might be amateur sports too is that if you're injured, uh, yeah, okay, you can make a lot of comments about, uh, well, he's still in the locker room and pepping everybody up and all. It doesn't work. You know, you got to be out there. Uh, you got to be out there playing. And uh, I think losing Kurt, uh, for a lot of the season, not having him available. I think that hurt some of their veteran leadership. Obviously, Steve, you know, Nash was a uh, was a steadying influence. The Amari injury and Amari being in and out, he's not around the team. Is he working with the trainer? Is he doing what he should? That was a very, very, very divisive influence throughout the whole year. And I'm not sure they couldn't have you know, won the championship, had that team that went into the practice on the first day, uh, had they stayed together, Nash and Amari would have perfected that, uh, you know, the lob pick and roll and man, they would have been good. But that was a very, very uh, dividing element. Uh, Amari being kind of in again, out again. Yeah, you make a great point there with veterans kind of needing to play. I think that's something that the Suns have lacked the last few years. They've brought in veteran guys, but they've been sitting on the bench or injured, as you said, and you know, they've brought in Ariza and, and Anderson to play that role this year, and hopefully they'll be in the you know starting five and, and can lead the way a little bit more. But the next one comes in a, in a timeout section after the Suns win a game against the Clippers and the series is tied 3-3, three to three, and this one's kind of timely for the upcoming season. So who said this? You should keep your eye on this guy. Really sharp, really popular over in Italy as a player and then a coach. You should keep your eye on this guy. Really popular. You mean somebody said that about D'Antoni, obviously. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be somebody outside the... Uh... I'll give you a clue here, Jack. It was a female. It was a female. Wow. Well, I'm trying to think how many of them I quote in a book beside Laurel D'Antoni. I mean, maybe maybe Mike's wife said it about him, but... Oh, no. You're on the right track there. Think of the Italian link and the wife link. Oh, it could have been, uh, I don't know, was it Brian Colangelo's wife? It was, Barbara Bottini. Barbara Bottini, yes, who uh, who emerged in Philadelphia when, uh, you know, Barbara became a little bit of a, uh, you know, a character in the Jerry, in the, I'm sorry, the Brian Colangelo drama in Philadelphia. Yeah, that, that quote I threw in there because it really jumped out at me. She seemed to be the one that first uh, told Brian a, about Mike D'Antoni, so you know, really into her basketball. And, and that was maybe the eventual 
downfall of Brian in in Philadelphia. She was a very smart girl. She came over the first time she came over, the first time I saw her, and the fact, first time I met D'Antoni, as a matter of fact, was he was a player in the McDonald's Open, the first one that was in Milwaukee. And Barbara was kind of a public relations person with the Italy team. And Mike came over and played, uh, you know, was kind of the aging point guard. And he always reminded me that he had a triple-double in the game they played against the Bucks, But it was like 10, 11, and 10 or something. You know, it was... Uh, I looked it up eventually, but he had a he had a triple-double in it. So, he, you know, he was, a, he was a really, really good European basketball player, Dan Tony. So, Colangelo actually leaves halfway through the book uh, in this season for Toronto. So... You know, was the sense around the team that Sava was, you know, trying to finally, you know, rid the Colangelo influence around the Suns franchise and and claim his, you know, his franchise outright, so to speak? I think that's fair to say. Uh, I mean, Jerry, you know, this is 12 years later and Jerry is an enormous figure in the league. I mean, still, you know, he looms over the Hall of Fame. Uh, He looms over... uh, the, the national team, you know, the U.S. Olympic team, the selection committee, uh, and Jerry's shadow in Phoenix was a very, very big one. And, you know, Sarver, I think, felt a little bit like, hey, man, I was the one paid the money for this team, you know. And uh, I think that had a little bit to do with it. But I think Brian, I, I didn't see that as a sustainable relationship, that Brian continuing to be the general manager at a team that his father once owned and now he doesn't. Brian, he needed to get away. So I think your question's accurate. But at the same time, uh, I think Brian needed to get away from there also. Yeah, I mean, he, he kind of at first wasn't interested in the, the Toronto approach. And, and then Sava basically, you know, gave the team permission to, to talk to Colangelo. And, you know, from there, it was kind of over. Colangelo didn't even bring the offer back for Sava to match and you know as you said I think both parties were maybe ready to to separate ways and you know all the Colangelos and Sava and and everyone was in on that uh, free agency meeting with with Steve Nash before Nash came over to Phoenix and as you said I think there was some feelings with Sava that he he kind of needed to claim his team finally this team that he'd paid all this money for and and should have control over. Yeah, I mean Phoenix, you know, Phoenix is a small town, you know, quote a small town. I mean and and the Colangelos loomed over it and they needed to they needed they needed space there. there there's no question about it. Sarver didn't do everything correctly, but I never blamed him for uh, Brian leaving or anything like that. You know, I, I think that was probably the right thing for all for all parties. We'll jump forward. The the last matchup is against the Mavericks and, and the Suns win game one. Nash has 27 points and 16 assists in that game against the team he left in that free agency period, mind you. So that prompts uh, one of the assistant coaches, and I'll probably give it away here, but the quote is, if they don't think that little motherfucker is the MVP now, they can kiss my black ass. Who said that, Jack? Well, that's obviously Alvin Gentry. I, I remember that. I can remember that exactly. I remember that we were walking back in the tunnel, and I and you know, and this was like only a couple seconds after the after the game was over, and I can I can <laughs> just picture that. You know, Alvin was the source of many great quotes in the book, and the reason. A large part of the reason that the book worked 
in my opinion, was, first of all, D'Antoni saying yes to doing it. But the assistant coaches, the spirit of those guys, Alvin, uh, Mark Ivoroni, Phil Weber, um, and Dan, D'Antoni, that's really the reason it worked. That That's the guys that really adopted me and made me feel like part of it and uh, really let – because Mike I'm, I was pretty close to, but the, the head coach of a team is busy. I mean, he's the face of the franchise, you know, and a lot of my time was spent with uh, with those guys, and I, to this day, remember that very fondly. Yeah, so Alvin's, you know, obviously a head coach now in the league, and he was twice before a, a head coach before that season with Phoenix. It, it sounds like you spent quite a bit of time with him. Did you – you know, get the sense during that season and your time with him that, you know, he did eventually want to become his own head coach again? Well, first of all, the answer to your question is absolutely. I mean, he thought he was going to be a head coach, and I think he had been. If I'm not, my history's now a little bit. He had coached the uh, – so Alvin had coached the uh, the Clippers, but like everybody with the Clippers, you know, he got fired. And I used – I thought about this years later. In fact, I talked it over with Alvin. I saw him down in New Orleans – if you would have taken a snapshot then of, well, who's going to be coaching? You know, you just can't tell Mike with his third team since then, D'Antoni, Alvin back in the mix. I mean, being mentioned last year as a coach of the year candidate, uh, Ivoroni had a uh, had a shot in Memphis, but once again, he was kind of hired to be fired. That wasn't a good uh, situation for him. And Dan D'Antoni, back coaching at his alma mater. You know, he's back coaching at at Marshall, where he and Mike were Hall of Fame players. So you think you can predict things, but I'm telling you, man, you don't know where anybody's going to end up. You really don't. Steve Nash, a Laker? <laughs> if I would have thought of that at the end of the year, I mean, there's, there is no way to predict uh, where w- the way things are going to be 10 years later. And I found that out by doing this book. And, and Dan's a great example of that. The, the character that he plays in this book and his coaching philosophy, you know, as you said back in uh, part one here, of, you know, he was very much a believer in, you know, once you're in the NBA, you, you're probably a good defender and had a very you know, black and white, a view of the NBA. And, and now some of his more recent quotes, he, he's gone a, a full 360 and is, you know, a very analytical college coach and, and very much against the grain in that system. Yeah, my, um, the two brothers, Mike is very, very much where he should be. He should be heading an NBA team. As I mentioned before, you know, face of a franchise, Mike is very much that type of guy. And Dan is very much where he should be also. I'm not sure, Dan, maybe it was all the years, you know, he was a high school coach for 30 years. So maybe by then it was too ingrained. But it always seemed a difficult fit to wedge Dan into the NBA. And I'm just really glad he's He's happy and he's doing uh, he's doing very well in uh, in Marshall. Yeah. So my last quote and question for you here, Jack, and it, it comes after the Suns bow out four three to the Mavs in those conference finals, and it is I'm really proud of you guys. Given the setbacks we had this year, you guys brought it every night and you won your division fifty four games. 
We're going to be even better next year. Who said that, Jack? Uh, well, the logical thing would be uh, Mike, but somehow I don't think. I'm going to guess that maybe uh, – I'm, I'm taking a guess here. I'm going to guess maybe that Sarver said that to him. Yep, you've ended on a high note there, Jack. That is correct. The, the Suns were better next year, winning 61 games, but you know have basically never gone further than that 05-06 season. So – Without the benefit of hindsight, you know, what was your general feeling, you know, maybe hearing that quote around the team directly after the loss? Did, you know, did you think that they were going to be better with Amari and, and things like that? Or as you said, you know, not being able to predict the future in the NBA, did you think that maybe that was, uh, you know, their one wasted opportunity? Well, when I, when I got to the end of that season, you have to remember where the beginning was. I mean, the beginning of it was, who the hell knew what was going to be? Because, you know, the the assumption was they had lost Quentin Richardson, they had lost uh, Joe Johnson, that maybe they weren't going to, I mean, they had gotten off to that unbelievable start, you know, the year before. So people knew they arrived. But it wasn't like we're looking at the Suns as, oh my God, uh, these guys are going to win the title. And there were doubts about the way they played. So when you got to the end of the year, you would look back and say, well, they were probably as good as we expected. However, they should have beaten Dallas. I mean, they had them by eight points in a, you know, in Dallas, the, you know, to go up three to two in game five. I still remember that. <laughs> Mark Stein was sitting next to me and goes, you're going to be winning a championship because the Suns would have beaten Miami. I mean, Shaq couldn't get off the, you know, he couldn't play against them. You know, he, he just, they just would have taken him out of the game. And they just had to shut down Dwayne Wade. That's all ridiculous retrospect. But the best team the Suns had was obviously the next two years. You know, Amari was healthy. Steve and Amari were really, really, really rolling. They knew what they were doing. And look, the NBA is full of these almost teams. That is what you get. All those teams that went up against Jordan. You know, the Utah Jazz were an almost team. The Sacramento Kings at the turn of the century, you know, with that great team that they had. There are so many almost teams. And among those teams, the sons of those three or four years were certainly among the best. And they were certainly among the most entertaining. Yeah. So as you as you mentioned, they they went on to to lose a semifinal and and then lost in the first round. And then uh, ironically, as we were discussing before, Gentry then took over the team and he got them back to the conference finals again after a 54-win season, but they lost 4-2, and, and they haven't been back to the playoffs since, since that 0-9-10 season. That, that's an eight-season playoff drought. So, uh, you know, who knows what Sava would be thinking now in terms of that run he got early on compared to the, the last eight years, Jack. No, they were, at, you know, the time that they were really, really, really at their best was when they should have done it because the West, I mean, the Spurs were really, really, really good and stood in kind of diametric opposition to the Suns. You know, they had they couldn't do anything with Duncan. You know, I mean, he defended the hell out of them, as he did with a lot of teams. Uh, offensively, he was really, really good. And Parker and Ginobili, you know, were really good then also. But now, to get back now, and now LeBron's moving to the West. <laughs> so... You know, to get back, I mean, you you got the, you got the Warriors, you got you know you got Lillard and McCollum in uh, in Portland. You know, you have LeBron now in the West. Um, you have 
you know, Westbrook, uh, you know, those guys. I mean, it's going to be really, really, really hard. And the Suns are just going to be one of those teams that are going to look back and say, well, I wish we could have won it all then because it ain't going to be easy now. Look at the Mavericks. You know, they won a championship and... uh and they're really, really struggling to get back to any kind of relevance. So these things have an ebb and flow to them. And uh, I was I was happy to be around when the, the Suns were really coming up. And on a personal and professional basis, yeah, I wish they would have won it all. Yeah, and that kind of brings us to the end of the book and, and the end of our chat, Jack. And the end of the book is really interesting. I love that you kind of end it with a look at the off season and the Suns trying to make some moves around the draft for the for the upcoming season and, and things don't quite go their way. But yeah, it's just a perfect end to the book and, and, and leaves the reader kind of wondering what could have been. But like last episode, are you open to another round of seven seconds or less to finish off here? Sure. So last time we focused on writing this book, but this time I wanted to talk about uh, all the other things you've done. So I'll jump into question one. Who's the best interview in general throughout your kind of Sports Illustrated career and, and other things that you've done? And, and who's the one interview that you wish you got but never did? I never got to the root uh, the way I should. I've interviewed him, but since then we've had kind of a falling out. I just saw him up at the Hall of Fame and I wasn't able to interview him for the Dream Team book. And that was Isaiah Thomas. We went back and forth a lot with uh, with some conflict. And, uh, and, I, and I would have to say the best, you know, look, in this business, you have to get to the best guys. And uh, I was lucky. So I would have to say, I would have to say Jordan. Not so much for what he said, but his availability and my ability to get to him when he was the you know the most popular athlete on the planet. So for question two here, for any Suns fans listening that uh, have read Seven Seconds or Less but but only read that book, which other book of yours are, are you most proud of with the end product that they should maybe pick pick up and read? Well, I'm not I'm not just saying this because uh, I'm on this broadcast, but by far the Suns book. If I were judging my own work, I. I I really thought was the best book. I'll never have a chance to do an inside book like that. Having said that, uh, my my latest book called Golden Days is out in uh, in paperback, and I I think it was really a an interesting look at Jerry West first of all, and then a way to kind of connect the two eras uh, of the uh, of the NBA. And I thought I was pretty successful in doing that. And I would say the other book would if anybody if any male out there has prostate cancer. Uh, I wrote a book called The Prostate Monologues, which I'm uh, pretty proud of. Yeah, I, I plan on, on picking that one up for sure, Jack, after after reading through your recent projects. Uh, I lost my father to cancer, so I, I'm definitely going to have a, a look into that one. But finally, to end it off here, is there another project in the works? Is there is there anything that you can you know tease us coming up in the future? What, what are you up to these days? Well, they're doing a, uh, a movie company bought a uh, bought the rights to dream team. So they are making, there already has been one documentary about uh, dream team. Uh, and, but th- these guys are kind of taking a new approach, different approach, kind of a cultural approach to the phenomenon of it. That's going to be on BET next year sometime. So I'm kind of working with them. And beside that, I'm, I don't know, I'm just looking around for maybe a, a smaller book to write a book about, I don't know, a story that I'm trying to find a story that nobody knows about in basketball. And uh, I have a couple ideas, but nothing really in fruition yet. Well, great. That, that's it for it, Jack. I wanted to thank you a, a whole heap one more time for, for giving us your time. This has been a heap of fun for, for this Suns fan. And 
you know, I, I hope listeners have enjoyed it too. And, you know, maybe we'll find a, a few more new readers of seven seconds or less that haven't picked it up before, or, you know, maybe a few more that'll, that'll go back and, and read it again after this little chat. So listeners, you can, you can follow Jack on Twitter. That's how I ended up getting in touch with him and keep up with him there for all these, you know, possible new projects coming in the future. But thanks very much, Jack, for coming on. Okay. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. 